Welcome to the Faculty New Books podcast, covering the latest authors and publications from across the subject spectrum. So I chose to focus on the West because I feel like it's um, part in, in shaping the modern U.S. as a whole has been underplayed. What's more startling, I think, to people who are familiar with the way the U.S. West gets constructed in the history of the United States is that I started in 1898 rather than starting in the famous um, closing of the frontier speech that uh, was given in 1893 that foreclosed the frontier as 1890. And I started in 1898 because 1898 was an inflection point for the United States. The United States had always been expansionist, but for the first time in 1898, it went after territories with no intention of incorporating them fully into the nation on an equal basis. It became, in other words, a nation-based empire. As a result of the Spanish-American War, it acquired Puerto Rico and other territories, and they would remain permanently territories. And that shift required a new set of distinctions at home. It required setting apart the citizens of the nation from those peoples of the territories. It took up what Rudyard Kipling had termed the white man's burden when Kipling urged the United States to take its place among European empires. And the U.S. was at pains to demonstrate it belonged there that it was no longer a backwater, but a modern nation state capable of governing not only its own people, but those it colonized. That meant that race and no longer participation in a set of ideas about democracy became an increasingly important marker of modernity and of citizenship. Everything got wrapped up in that shift. Notions of appropriate gender behavior for men and women, sexuality, marriage, the environment, labor relations, property ownership, access to water, among other things that the book covers. And because the federal government owned more land in the West than the East or the South, the West became the place, the stage, the theater that was both the imagined mythic past of the country, the place that defined its character, and the blank page on which modernity, the future, could be inscribed. It became the place that facilitated a drastically increased state capacity and the repository of migrants and residents who had that dream, who had firm ideas about belonging and what that took, about the role of their own voice, at their autonomy, having been drawn by the mythic West. And in both cases, these key actors worked to make their vision reflected by material reality around them. We tend in the United States to see all racial formations as stemming from the history of slavery, and in particularly the developments in the US South that racialized slavery. But when you look at key cases that institutionalized racial formations in the U.S. in the 20th century, those cases deeply implicated the U.S. West. Brown versus the Board of Education, for example, in which the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the doctrine of separate but equal, was a Kansas case. And this book explains how the U.S. got to that point. Over the period covered in this book, you hear the steady drumbeat from U.S. congressmen, among others, that the U.S. was a white man's country destined to be so from the start, that its opportunities were meant for white men, that its resources were meant for white men, that it was meant to manifest the pinnacle of Anglo-Saxon civilization. But just who was white could be tricky in the West. It changed from state to state. It changed nationally over the period the book covers. The stakes were high, but with a constitution that defined eligibility for citizenship in terms of black and white, and a region peopled with Native Americans, Mexicans, and Asians, There was a lot of gray. At the start of this period, Japanese immigrants could be and were declared white in legal cases. A mining town determined to restrict opportunities to white men had to create a three-man committee to decide who was and who was not a Mexican. 
And Native Americans made their own determinations about who was and who was not a tribal member without worrying about who was or who was not white. Mexicans crossed the mostly unmarked border without hindrance, joining the Mexican descent people whose residence in the Southwest predated the US conquest of the territory. By 1900, they formed as much as a third of the vital labor in railroads and mining. The US kept no land-based immigration records until 1908, and when it finally began to do so, it was out of concern with Japanese immigration in the wake of the 1907 Gentlemen's Agreement and not out of concern with Mexican immigration. But by the end of the period covered in the book, all that changed. Determined to gain more control over lands held by Native Americans, in Oklahoma, for example, the new state defined anyone with African descent as black and everyone else as white, and then forbade marriage between blacks and whites. Now the Creek in particular had a long history of such intermarriage, which had meant that blacks had access through marriage to tribal lands. The new law not only halted such access, reserving it to whites, but resulted in the spectacle, for example, of one couple, both of whom identified as Creek and only spoke Creek, having their marriage invalidated because, though both were, according to them, three quarters Creek, one had some African and the other some white, I guess, as she put it, heritage. The US federal government joined Oklahoma in erasing the diverse descent of Native Americans. In the US, determinations of tribal membership, which determined who could benefit from treaty negotiations, anyone with African descent was by definition not Indian. Now at the same time, two massive diasporas, one from India and China, violently collided with an Irish diaspora driven by many of the same economic forces. They collided at the edges of empire, in Australia, in South Africa, and in the Pacific coast of Canada and the United States. The Irish, coming from a colonized island off Britain, had fought for rights and autonomy for centuries. They fought now for what they saw as the rights of white men in relation to the South Asians and East Asians they saw as competition for their jobs and their standing. They organized transnational anti-Asian groups. They did their best literally to drive Asian immigrants from their towns and states and even into the sea. They organized as voters, swing voters in Western states, and those states passed laws making it impossible for immigrants ineligible for citizenship to own land. And the federal courts clarified just who counted as ineligible by casting Asians outside of the shelter of whiteness. Myriad states passed new laws in these decades prohibiting marriage between whites and an ever-rising variety of other groups. Now in the same years, massive capital investment, often transnational capital, in irrigation by private and public entities made agriculture a labor-intensive, expensive proposition. With white families across the country fleeing for the farm for the city and fleeing farm work, uh, the federal government was eager to stabilize people on the land and protect the image of the family farmer as the autonomous backbone of democracy. And part of that meant not making him do the work. Unwilling to forgive repayment of irrigation infrastructure costs and in the face of successful agricultural labor organizing, the state instead helped create a permanently precarious and hence low wage agricultural labor force sometimes with violence, sometimes with collusion with officials, beckoning the labor when needed and deporting it when not. Overwhelmingly, that labor hailed from Mexico. Almost every aspect of Western development, railroads, mines, agriculture relied on Mexican labor. Labor that labor recruiters promised would disappear back below the border when not needed, thereby forestalling the creation of the racial dynamics and inequalities of the South. 
And yet, of course, they did not disappear. And their employers knew it. Mining companies in the U.S. West built Mexican housing separate, segregated from its Anglo housing and of inferior quality. Sugar beet companies built Mexican housing separated by railroad tracks from Anglo towns, and irrigation developments did the same. These dynamics led to the conflation of all Mexican descent people, citizen or not, as alien. And for the first and only time in 1930, the U.S. federal census counted Mexicans as a race and not a nationality. They were Mexican, even if they were U.S. citizens. A central theme of the book is the question of what would constitute modernity and whose vision would dominate. Modernity for some people meant corporate consolidation, capital-intensive agriculture, white supremacy, male-headed families, and private individual landholding. For other people, modernity could include racial mixing, transnational mobility, economic democracy, and collective ownership of land. Whites kept trying to put Indians on one side of the modern primitive divide, but tribal members kept showing up as industrial workers, union members, strikers, and revolutionaries, while still trying to defend their collectively held land. These decades witnessed a constant struggle in the West over competing visions of modernity. Because the federal government owned so much land in the West, it became the best place positioned to prove that the U.S. was a modern nation state, able to impose its will on the land and to order its people in ways that made them legible to the state, to know who to count on and who to count. Where the land was not actually a blank slate, it could be imagined as such. And then policy could make that imagined black slate material, wiping native flora and fauna and peoples off the land. To give just one example, the federal government created national parks in this period. It posited a wilderness that would provide recreation and restoration for civilized citizens. But it turned out those civilized citizens did not enjoy running into Native Americans who continued to use those lands, now designated as parks, for hunting or gathering or both, moving seasonally in and out of the parks. Many tribes had negotiated treaties that promised them access to public lands in perpetuity, lands that were essential to their survival. Park authorities claimed that those people reduced the scenic population of elk, that visitors complained that they were themselves unsightly and too primitive to benefit from and appreciate the restoration, and white hunters and their guides complained of the competition for game. Federal courts obliged by reinterpreting the treaties, arguing that land in the national parks was not part of the public domain, and so it was outside the rights guaranteed by treaty. This meant that Native Americans could participate in this modern landscape of wilderness versus civilization only as picturesque performers in costume, carefully curated as relics of the past, or as menial labor, carrying bags and invisible as Indians at all. At the other end of the spectrum, both the US and Mexico had federal governments in this period that favored large-scale corporate development in the name of modernization. Powerful corporations owned huge swaths of land until states could seem like wholly owned subsidiaries of copper companies, as with Arizona and Sonora, of lumber companies in the Northwest, milling companies, oil and gas companies, and so forth. They created spectacles of modernity in their company towns. They had modern machines, street lights, and sewage lines, and even more draconian controls over their workers. They tried to construct a world where capital flowed easily across borders, but labor, particularly organized labor, did not. But other modes of Democracy met those visions head on in dramatic strikes as organizers and members crossed borders. And in the 1910s with the Mexican Revolution, which had adherents on both sides of the border, the industrial workers of the world, the women's suffrage movement, and the nonpartisan league. 
Sometimes as allies and sometimes aligned with other labor and political movements, these people rocked the West in the name of a radically participatory democracy. Women suffrage won the greatest expansion of the electorate ever. It doubled the electorate. And it changed the relationship of women to the state and women to men. They won it almost everywhere in the West before they won it almost anywhere east of the Mississippi. In the West, they often allied with leftist movements, including the Socialist Party and the Nonpartisan League. In various places, their victories brought equal pay laws, mothers' pensions, and led to the first woman elected to serve in the US Congress, and in Canada, elected to anybody in the British Empire. The Nonpartisan League, in addition, brought state banking and grain elevators, and like the decades labor wars, including the Seattle General Strike, terrified capitalists. The exigencies of fighting World War I gave those capitalists the tools they needed violently to eviscerate these insurgent movements in the name of the war effort. And the ground of democracy shifted in the next decade to economic speculation, both by citizens, by the state. But while everyone from dentists to taxi drivers to congressmen and cabinet members liked to take a plunge in the market, and the era's oil, land, and tourist booms, along with the rise of Hollywood, had a particular Western cast, Congress still defined some people as unsuited to this speculator citizenship. Native Americans were once again defined as lacking market savvy and inappropriately enjoying oil riches when they had them. They weren't supposed to own a Pierce Arrow modern car. They weren't supposed to enjoy that. And they were in fact supposed to take a stage development. They were supposed to first do agriculture and learn that even though everybody knew agriculture was failing in the 20s before they could go on to enjoy speculating in the market. And that conviction by the federal government created policies that made Indians particularly vulnerable to corruption, which was massive in this period, and even to murder by their appointed guardians. Now, finally, when the Great Depression hit in the 1930s and the late 1920s, all these threads came together again. Governments at various levels participated in the mass expulsion of Mexicans, often with their US citizen children. And those insurgents of the 1910s roared back to life betrayed by the failure of speculation to lead to democratic inclusion and prosperity. They mobilized in massive strikes in agriculture and general strikes in San Francisco and Minneapolis. And in Minneapolis, former merchant seamen and dock workers turned into Teamsters and joined IWW members and pulled the New Deal to the left. The New Deal, trying to settle the insurgencies, again turned to massive public works, as well as small-scale planned farming communities, to dramatic reversals of Indian policy and to curating the environment. So in short, the West played a far larger role in national politics in constructing a modern US West than is usually thought. It helped shape not only racial formations and key industries, but definitions of modernity itself. The West in this period not only left us with a commitment to a particular agricultural model that relied on precarious low-wage labor, at the same time it modeled large-scale enterprise and enhanced state capacity, and that exclusion of that low-wage labor and of migrant peoples from the benefits of the state is something that we absolutely still see in the 21st century. It also kept alive a particular kind of American dream and American belonging. And it finally also kept alive a notion of democracy that was broader than political participation. That contest was never completely won by either side. In that alternative model where democracy included economic democracy and where contests over inclusion, who could participate in that democracy and who would define American, that continued into the 21st century.